0: Thank you so much, Ginger and Isabel. I love that song. I was singing it on the way here today in my car, belting it out. And it points to the fact that the Lord is our salvation, obviously. And in the Pentateuch and in Exodus in particular, we're going to see some grand themes of redemptive history unfold. And I know you already were reveling in those things in your personal study this week, But for the next two weeks, we're going to be talking about several major events in redemptive history. And the people involved in these events are often found saying things like, I can't do this and I want to go home. And as I was talking about this with my husband, he reminded me that that sounded really familiar to him from when I was in labor with our second child, with our daughter, Amy. (laughs) I can't do this. I want to go home. Let's just leave. Let's just go home. And somehow in my thinking, I thought, if I just leave the hospital, all this will end and I won't have to go through this suffering. But now I understand that's that's not how it works. That baby was going to be delivered, whether I liked it or not. And when we think about Israel, God was accomplishing their deliverance in spite of how they felt about it, in spite of their inability to do certain things, in spite of their complaining, God was faithful to bear them up and carry them along by his great mercy. Now, our study in Genesis obviously set the stage for Exodus. These books are in chronological order. And Genesis revealed to us the sinfulness of man and the curse that resulted from man's sin. It also revealed to us the need for divine help from God. Genesis also revealed to us how this help And how the blessing of God was going to come. And it wasn't going to be by us doing a bunch of good works, by people doing good things. It was going to come by faith. Just as Abraham demonstrated, right? He believed God and it was reckoned to him or credited to him as righteousness. Belief and faith was how deliverance and help was going to come to Israel. And in Genesis, we also learned about the threefold promise of God to the Israelites, to the patriarchs, that from their family tree would come many descendants who would obtain abundant prosperity in a fertile country, which was to be their own nation, land, seed, and blessing. And what was God's purpose all along in giving them these promises? Well, we've talked about it before. His purpose was always that Israel would reach the nations— With the message of God's deliverance through their Messiah. Exodus is really all about God continuing to do the work of building his kingdom, and that kingdom would be commissioned to go to the nations with the hope of the Messiah, with the message of deliverance. God preserved, sustained, and multiplied the Israelites through their 400 plus years in Egypt, just as he had promised to Abraham in Genesis 15 13. God said to Abram, Know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs, where they will be enslaved and oppressed 400 years. And in verse 14, God also said, But I will also judge the nation whom they will serve, and afterward they will come out with many possessions. God did just what he said he would do. He kept the Israelites separate from the Gentiles, allowing them to be fruitful and multiply to the point where we find them in Exodus chapter 1. So turn there in your Bibles if you haven't already. We're going to go through a lot of events pretty quickly. So if you keep your Bibles open, I'll try and let you know what chapter we're in so you can follow along with me. But in chapter 1, in God's perfect providence, the time for the Israelites to be delivered was approaching. And they would go out with many possessions, just as God had foretold. So today as we survey this narrative of Exodus 1 through 18, this is a big chunk, we're going to focus on four ways that God reveals himself to his people, to the nations, and to us today so that we can know our God more fully and worship him more faithfully. So four ways that God reveals himself to his people, to the nations, and to us so that we can know our God more fully and worship him more faithfully. First of all, we're going to look at chapters 1 and 2, where we see that God reveals his sovereignty by providentially carrying out all the plans and purposes that he has for his people. So in this chapter of Exodus 1, we don't see God's name until verse 20, but it's clear through all the events that takes place there that his hand is actively at work on behalf of the Israelites. On the timeline, we are three generations away from Joseph. When he had power in Egypt, so many rulers had come and gone in Egypt during that time. Just for a reference point, the nation of the United States has not even been established as a country for 300 years. And so we're talking 400 years, another 100 years beyond where we are. So you can imagine all of the rulers and regimes that had come and gone in the time that is past. passed. And any concern for Joseph or the people of Israel had been forgotten or lost. Exodus 1, 8 through 10 tells us that a new king arose over Egypt who did not know Joseph. He, the king, said to his people, Behold, the people of the sons of Israel are more and mightier than we. Behold, oh, I'm sorry. Come, let us deal wisely with them or else they will multiply. And in the event of war, they will also join themselves to those who hate us and fight against us and depart from the land. And then verse 11 says, So they, the Egyptians, appointed taskmasters over them to afflict them with hard labor. Throughout biblical history, we've seen that forces of evil are constantly attempting to make the promises of God invalid. Pharaoh's motive was to control the population of Israelites, and he eventually ramped up the persecution to include the death of the firstborn sons of Israel. He wanted his slaves, but he didn't want them to be too powerful. This event maybe takes you back in your thinking to another event that you would have read about recently with the Christmas story where King Herod was afraid that he didn't want to share his kingship with another. And so he ordered all the boys under age two to be slaughtered in order to try and get rid of King Jesus. But we also know that in both of these instances, a more sinister plan was unfolding. Satan was trying to wipe out the messianic line to keep the promised seed From ever coming. But we also know that God was never going to let that happen. And so in Exodus chapter two, we see that God in his providence and at the right time raised up a deliverer for the Egyptians, Moses, redeemed from the Nile by a princess and given back to his mother, educated in Egypt, called to be God's chosen deliverer, rejected by the people that he was supposed to save. Hebrews commends Moses for his faith. In Hebrews eleven twenty four, 24, it says that by faith, Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to endure ill treatment with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin. Considering the reproach of Christ, greater riches than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking for the reward. Now, Moses was not perfect. He was a sinful man and he murdered an Egyptian who he saw mistreating some Hebrew slaves, and he covered him up in the sand. Moses is never commended for committing murder, but he is commended for the faith that it took to leave the palace of Pharaoh and to unite himself with the Hebrews, with the slaves. He believed that the reward of following God with his chosen people was greater than the reward that he would have had by staying in Egypt. We don't know exactly how Moses knew, but he knew that he was a part of God's plan to bring the, Egyptian, bring the Israelites out of Egypt. And he was looking for the Messiah to come. However, there was some confusion in Moses' mind at this point, And under the threat of Pharaoh's retribution, Moses flees from Egypt to a place in the desert where he gets married and fathers sons and watches them grow up, works as a shepherd for his father-in-law. All the while, the Israelites' plight as slaves continues for another 40 years in Egypt while Moses was in Midian. Exodus 2:23 through 25 are key verses to consider as we think about God's sovereignty in delivering Israel. These verses say, now it came about in the course of those many days that the king of Egypt died and the sons of Israel sighed because of their bondage. And they cried out and their cry for help because of their bondage rose up to God. So God heard their groaning And God remembered his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God saw the sons of Israel, and God took notice of them. Note the phrases here. Their cry for help rose up to God. God heard. God remembered. God saw. God took notice. Now, the phrase in Hebrew, God remembered, doesn't mean that he forgot for a little while, and now he was calling it back to mind. No, it means he remembered in order to act. God is always faithful To carry out his plans and purposes for his people. And now the time was right. He was going to act and deliver them from Egypt. The MacArthur study notes point out that the span of time from creation and through the life of Joseph, the book of Genesis, covers more time than the rest of the Bible combined. I thought that was really interesting. And now we're looking at 400 years of slavery in Egypt. So we're even 400 years past that giant time frame. So we see from scripture clearly, and in many other cases as well, well, that God often allows his people to wait, and he also allows them to suffer at times while they wait. Waiting and suffering is part of God's plan, and it always has a purpose. Therefore, we should not be surprised when God tells us to wait, and the fact that he often delivers us through suffering should also not be surprising. This is how God works his timeline might not always be the one that we would choose but we can take heart because when the time is right when god has fulfilled his purpose for our suffering he will act and we can trust that it as always is always at the best most god honoring most strategic time and then also as we wait for his kingdom to come we can remember that god is not slow about his promised return as some count slowness right but he is patient waiting for all of his chosen people to repent and to put their faith in Christ, Second Peter 3, 9. And while we wait, we don't just sit around twiddling our thumbs. We can be faithful to serve God, to get to know him better, and to tell others about him. Our waiting is not supposed to be inactive as we bear the light so that many others can come to the kingdom of God with us. So don't allow the waiting or the presence of suffering in your life to shake your confidence in the fact that God's sovereign plans and purposes are being carried out. Next, we're going to see that God reveals his glory through this account. And this is a big chunk of scripture. We're going to look at chapters 3 through 12. God reveals his glory, making himself known to the people and to the nations. Moses was 40 years herding his father-in-law's sheep in the desert. Certainly a humbling experience after growing up in the palaces of Egypt. And in his 80th year of life, God chose to reveal himself to Moses through a burning bush in the desert at Horeb, which is called the mountain of God and which is also called Mount Sinai. We read in chapter three that from the burning bush, God told Moses to keep his distance. And in three five, he says that the place where Moses is standing is holy ground. The word holy, this is the first time that it appears in the Bible, in the Pentateuch. God has always been holy, but as Lauren mentioned earlier, this, this is God's revelatory history. He's revealing himself more and more to his people and to us. So God's holiness here is revealed to Moses and to the Israelites for the first time. Holiness means that God is perfect. He's separate from all others. He's completely different from us. There's a separation. There's a distinction between God and man. And God's presence renders everything around him holy and sacred. So to approach God at all is something really extraordinary. And so Moses here is required to move the shoes from his feet, a uh, common sign of reverence, a common sign of humility. And then in Exodus 3, verses 7 through 9, God expresses care and concern for what his people are enduring in Egypt. And he proclaims his plan to Moses that he would deliver and give his people the promised land, just as he had told Abraham. So look with me at chapter 3, verses 7 through 9. The Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have given heed to their cry because of their taskmasters, for I am aware of their sufferings. So I have come down to deliver them from the power of the Egyptians and to bring them up from that land to a good and spacious land, to a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanite and the Hittite and the Amorite and the Perizzite and the Hivite and the Jebusite. Now behold, the cry of the sons of Israel has come to me. Furthermore, I have seen the oppression with which the Egyptians are oppressing them. So Moses rightly fears the Lord in this situation, and the Lord commissions Moses to go back to Egypt and to act on his behalf as their deliverer. The Lord assured Moses that the deliverance of the Israelites would be accomplished and that Moses would certainly come back to that very spot at Mount Horeb or Mount Sinai and worship him. Did it stand out to you in this passage that Moses was told that the one speaking to him was the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob? And yet Moses asks, who are you? What is your name? What am I supposed to tell the Israelites about you? Well, remember from past renaming incidents with Abraham and Sarah and Jacob, names in the Hebrew language carry a lot of meaning. And when you ask someone their name, you're asking about their character, about who they are. So Moses is asking, who are you? He's really asking, what is your character? What, what do I tell the Israelites about this God who is telling me to redeem them? And so in Exodus three fourteen, the Lord tells him, I am who I am. And he said, this you shall say to the sons of Israel, I am, has sent me to you. In other words, God is declaring to Moses and to the Israelites, I am exactly who I say that I am. God needs no one else to define him or reveal him. He reveals himself to whom he wills, as he wills. I am indicates to us that God is separate ...from any human or any other so-called God. He is above all and he is unlike any other. God is not the greatest God or the greatest person or the greatest anything. If he were the greatest or the best, that would mean that there's someone with whom we could compare him. He is the great I am. He has no equal, uncreated, self-existing, needing no one else. He has complete freedom to act however he wishes... He needs no permission to do anything, but can do all he desires. He is present, he is active, and he is powerful. And in chapter 3, verse 15, God leaves no doubt when he says to, Abraham to t- says to Moses to tell the Israelites, Yahweh, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and this is my memorial name to all generations." And after revealing himself, his name mightily to Moses, we see that Moses was still reluctant to take up the commission and go to Israel as their deliverer. But after many appeals, including the assurance in chapter 4, verse 19, that everyone who had sought Moses' life was dead, God graciously grants Moses the help of his brother Aaron, as well as miraculous signs to show, to prove that the Lord had sent him. Chapter 4, verses 22 to 23, revealed to us that God knew from the start exactly what was going to happen in Egypt. So these verses are before Moses even goes to Pharaoh. And God says, Then you shall say to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my son, my firstborn. So I said to you, Let my son go, that he may serve me. But you, Pharaoh, have refused to let him go. Behold, I will kill your son, your firstborn. None of these events was in the least way surprising to Yahweh. So now turn over to Exodus chapter 5, and Moses is back in Egypt, and at God's command, he tells Pharaoh that Yahweh, the God of the Hebrews, has met with me and commands you to let us go a three days journey to sacrifice to him. Pharaoh said to Moses in Exodus 5-2, Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? This is some pretty serious foreshadowing, isn't it? Who is the Lord that I should obey him? I don't know Yahweh. I don't know the Lord. Well, God was certainly going to show himself to Pharaoh and to the Egyptians in ways that they would never forget. But because Pharaoh's first reaction to this news that God was going to deliver Israel was to increase the workload of the Israelites, once again, they were slow to accept Moses and their deliverer. They blame Moses for the increase in their workload. And they even call down God's judgment on Moses. Moses, again, questions God's plans as well. But in chapter 6, God graciously reveals more of his plan to Moses and tells him that because of Pharaoh's hard heart, his hard-hearted response, Moses and Aaron were going to see what God would do. And in Exodus 6.6, he says, "...I will also redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great judgments." Then I will take you for my people, and I will be your God. And you shall know that I am the Lord, your God, who brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. God was ready to act. He was ready to make himself known to his people. Holding true then to what Whitney taught us last week about historical narratives, not necessarily going in straight chronological order, chapter 6 ends with a genealogy of Moses and Aaron. And then in 628 to 7, 7, there's a really great summary of this commission of Moses and Aaron to go back to Egypt. And then in, seven chap- in chapter 7, verse 8, the narrative picks up again with Moses and Aaron <clears throat> um, and God beginning to show himself to Pharaoh and the Egyptians by performing these miraculous signs and wonders or plagues, as they're often referred to, to reveal himself as the great I am. Blood, frogs, gnats, flies, death of cattle, boils, hail, locusts, darkness for three days, and the death of the firstborn son. Ten signs that God employed to show Pharaoh and the Israelites who he was. Ten signs to show Pharaoh that he ought to let the people go as Moses had asked. We don't know the exact length of time that it took for these signs to be executed. There are estimates that range from a number of weeks to even months. So I like efficiency. Was this the most efficient way for God to set the Israelites free from Egypt? Definitely not. It was not easiest. It was not most efficient. He certainly could have just wiped the Israelites out in a day. He could have spoken one word and instantly the Egyptians would have been transported to the promised land. But why did he take this time? Why did he do it this way? We don't have to wonder because chapter 9 Verses 15 and 16 tell us exactly why. He says, For if by now I had put forth my hand and struck you, Pharaoh, and your people with pestilence, you would then have been cut off from the earth. He says, I could have wiped them out in one day. But indeed, for this reason, I have allowed you to remain in order to show you my power and in order to proclaim my name through all the earth. Still, you exalt yourself against my people by not letting them go. It wasn't only about setting Israel free. Freedom is a good thing. We value, we love our freedom. But this story isn't all about slaves being set free. It is about God being put on display and his power being shown. Each one of these miracles was initiated by God and was designed and controlled by Yahweh for the purpose of making his name known, and for the sake of his own reputation. In the process of Israel being delivered from Egypt, God alone is exalted as the one true God, and he is revealed as the God of all creation, controlling all things for his purposes. There is always a purpose for suffering and waiting. Because of time limitations, I prepared a chart for you last week, which you should have received. If you didn't, you can ask your leader for one. I hope it was helpful reference for you as you looked at chapters 7 through 11, in part to see how these signs were specifically designed by God to destroy the reputation of the gods of Egypt, to show how powerless they actually were. But despite witnessing all of these signs and wonders, Pharaoh was determined to remain in his disbelief. Pharaoh hardened his own heart. He bore responsibility before God for his actions. But we also read that, God, in his perfect plan, hardened Pharaoh's heart. In chapters 9 and 10, specifically in 10, 1 and 2, God says, Go to Pharaoh, for I have hardened his heart and the heart of his servants, that I may perform these signs of mine among them. This was always part of God's plan. And that you may tell in the hearing of your son and of your grandson how I made a mockery of the Egyptians. How I performed my signs among them, that you may know that I am the Lord. The hardening of Pharaoh's heart did not look like God taking a kind, mostly benevolent king and turning him into some kind of a monster. No, Pharaoh's intentions were bad from the beginning. He had a hard heart, but his hard heart was not a surprise to God, and it was also providentially ordained and used by God to accomplish his mission of making himself known. We can and must trust God's purposes in all things. We studied Romans last year, no, two years ago now, where we read that God hardens whom he hardens and has mercy on whom he has mercy. And who are we to question his will? That comes into play here as well. We know that God is the great I am. He has his own prerogatives and ultimately he makes himself known to whom he wills using whatever means he ordains. 400 years in a foreign land as slaves, a princess rescuing a baby out of the river, a burning bush, a king's wicked intention, even death and disease. All of these were tools in God's arsenal for making himself known and accomplishing his purposes. What did God use to bring you to himself? Perhaps he used the gentle and sweet example of loving parents and grandparents or a friend to draw you to Christ. Or maybe he used the disastrous and difficult consequences of your sin to open your eyes to your need for a Savior. And what is he currently using now in your life to put his glory on display? Is it success or failure? Is it COVID-19, the loss of a job, a move, an illness? God is a God who speaks and who acts and who delights to make himself and his glory known at the right time and in the right way. Praise the Lord that he knows exactly what we need and he will always win the souls which he came, which he sent Jesus to redeem. God is faithful to reveal himself and his glory to the people and to the nations. And he is right now making his glory known through the circumstances that are going on around us. And one day we know that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And one day we are gonna behold him face to face. And we're going to know him like never before. And because he is the eternal great I am, we will forever be knowing him more and more. God revealed his glory to us at the Exodus. He revealed his glory to us in Christ. And one day we're going to enjoy his glory with him forever in heaven. And that brings us to our third point that we also see in this narrative that God reveals his redemption, powerfully judging his enemies and redeeming his people. And we're going to look at this based on Exodus 12:23 through 15:21. So the story of Israel's deliverance from Egypt, the story of the Passover and the Exodus is both a celebration of God's power to redeem his people and also his authority to judge those who stand in opposition to him. The imagery in this portion of scripture is powerful. While we look to the New Testament, we see the death and resurrection of Christ as the supreme example of redemption in all of history. The story of the exodus from Egypt in the Old Testament is the greatest example of deliverance in the Old Testament. After the Egyptians willingly give their possessions to the Israelites, as you remember was prophesied to Abram in Genesis, God told the Israelites that a great grief was going to come upon Egypt. However, in Exodus 11, verse 7, God had said that against the sons of Israel, a dog won't even bark. That you may understand how the Lord makes a distinction between Israel and Egypt. God didn't say a dog won't bite you, which that would be really good, but God says a dog won't even bark. The bark of a dog is really, it's annoying, but it's harmless. Um, And not even that was going to happen to the Israelites. And then in Exodus 12, verse 23, We learn about the instructions given to the Israelites concerning the Passover. They were to kill a sheep or a goat and spread the blood on the doorposts of their homes so that their firstborn sons and animals would not die. God says in verse 13 of chapter 12, The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you live. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. Without the substitute of a spotless lamb, God's judgment would not pass over. It would fall on them as well. But with the substitutionary blood of a lamb spread on the doorposts of their homes as a sign of their faith, the Israelites would be spared and ultimately delivered from Egypt, not just for a few days, but forever. Hebrews 11 again commends Moses for his faith at this point in the story. Hebrews 11:28 says, By faith, he kept the Passover and the sprinkling of the blood so that he who destroyed the firstborn would not touch them. So we see from this passage, faith takes action. Faith believes what God says and then does what God commands us to do. Now, from our church age perspective, we know that the ultimate Passover lamb is Jesus Christ, our Savior, who came to earth as a Hebrew and paid the penalty for our sin when he died on the cross during the remembrance of this very week, this Passover week. But unlike other Passover lambs, Jesus died once for all who would believe in him from every tribe and tongue and nation. And then he rose from the dead. No other Passover sacrifice had ever done that before. We are covered by the blood of Christ from the death and judgment that we deserve. Judgment passes over those who are in Christ Jesus. And one day we will rise again with him as well. But remember, at this point in our narrative, the Israelites would have gone backwards in their thinking to Abraham, and a ram provided for him in the bushes so that he didn't have to kill his firstborn son. Now, for the whole nation of Israel descended from Abraham, just as God had promised, God also makes a way for the Israelite sons to escape death. For them to be spared, a lamb or a goat had to die. The Passover account and the departure of Israel from Egypt is recorded in Exodus 1229 to 40, where we read that Pharaoh, who had tried to wipe out the firstborn of Israel, ended up on the receiving end of that crushing blow. When Pharaoh realized that all of the firstborn of Egypt had died, including his own firstborn son, he tells Moses to get out, to go and worship the Lord. Oh yeah, and bless me as you go. So Pharaoh is still, in his mind, prideful and hard-hearted. He's still thinking this is a temporary release, that they could go out for a little while and then come back. And then in Exodus 13, more worship instructions are given before the narrative continues with God leading Israel around the land of the Philistines to protect them from what they would see there, a warring people that would frighten them. In Exodus 13, verse 21 says that the Lord was going before them in a pillar of cloud by day to lead them on the way and in a pillar of fire by night to give them light. The Lord's presence was with them, guiding them and protecting them and comforting them. And then according to their past pattern, Pharaoh and his leaders changed their mind about letting Israel go and decide to pursue them. Now the Israelites, when they see them coming, 14.10 tells us, they quaked in their boots. They became very frightened and blamed Moses again for bringing them out of Egypt where they had it so good. And now they're going to be out here to die in the wilderness. And in Exodus 14, 13 to 14, Moses responds to them. And we see here Moses' faith has built and Moses' faith is growing. He says, "'Do not fear, stand by and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will accomplish for you today. For the Egyptians whom you have seen today, you will never see them again forever.'" The Lord will fight for you while you keep silent. I don't know if that was kind of a request for them to just cool it and be quiet for a while. And then God confirmed to Moses that he would deliver them and told Moses what to do. Moses stretched out his staff and the Red Sea was divided, allowing the Israelites to escape across on dry land. But when the Egyptians were allowed by God to pursue, it was too late. God confused them in the midst of the sea. And when Moses raised his staff again, the waves came crashing down over Pharaoh and his army and all of them were drowned. Not even one escaped. Again, Hebrews 11 speaks of this event. It says, by faith, they, the Israelites, passed through the Red Sea as though they were passing through dry land and the Egyptians, when they attempted it, were drowned. It's pretty encouraging to me, by the way, that God commends these weak people for their faith. People just like me who see God's great deliverance and mercy But then when they meet with a challenge, they fear and distrust. But ultimately, God does commend them for their faith in stepping out and crossing the Red Sea. So what is God asking you to do by faith? Uh, Maybe you could write your own little Hebrews 11 about yourself. By faith, she stopped nagging and started praying for her husband. (laughs) By faith, she got up an hour earlier to spend time in the Word and in prayer. By faith she cared lovingly for her elderly parent, even though they never said thank you. By faith, she went to a difficult job every day with a smile on her face and a thankful heart. Faith is acting in spite of how we feel. We are going to feel afraid. We're going to feel nervous. But will you act in faith and still follow God and obey what he tells you to do? God showed himself at the Red Sea to be the powerful redeemer of his people and the powerful judge of his enemies. And then in chapter 15, and I wish we had time to read this whole chapter, Moses and the Israelites sing a redemption song. Actually, it's more of a judgment song. Moses ascribes the victory to the Lord, and specifically and mostly by recounting the actions of God at the Red Sea. He doesn't really mention the plagues at all or the actual exit from Egypt, But this scene at the Red Sea where Pharaoh and his whole army are completely wiped out, forever freeing Israel from their bondage, is the focus of this song. And we see it over and over in scripture. I'll just read verses 8 through 10 of chapter 15. It says, "'At the blast of your nostrils, the waters were piled up. The flowing waters stood up like a heap. The deeps were congealed in the heart of the sea. The enemy said, "'I will pursue, I will overtake, I will divide the spoil.'" My desire shall be gratified against them. I will draw out my sword; my hand will destroy them. You blew with your wind, and the sea covered them. They sank like lead in the mighty waters. Do you know something else? I think is just so exciting. The song of Moses doesn't end with this scene. Revelation fifteen two and three. Write those verses down. Revelation fifteen two and three tells us that the song of Moses is going to be sung in the future as a song of victory by those who will defeat the Antichrist after the tribulation. John writes in Revelation 15, 2 and 3, and I saw something like a sea of glass. And those who had been victorious over the beast and his image and the number of his name standing on the sea of glass holding harps of God, and they sang the song of Moses and of the Lamb. I just think that's so amazing. Tribulation saints are going to stand around the throne singing both the song of Moses and the song of the Lamb before God's throne. The work of God in redeeming his people from Egypt is going to be sung about for all eternity. God is the great redeemer of his people. And we're going to see next week how this great redemption is to inspire the Israelites' worship and obedience of Yahweh, just as our great redemption is supposed to inspire us to walk worthy of our calling as our pastor has been teaching from Ephesians 4. But there's also a caution here, isn't there, when we think about the Egyptians. Proverbs 29.1, write that verse down too. It gives a really stern warning that a man who hardens his neck after much reproof will suddenly be broken beyond remedy will suddenly be broken beyond remedy. I think Pharaoh is the poster child for this verse. If you have hardened your heart against the truth, against the gospel of Christ, his offer of salvation, there will come a day when there will be no escaping from his judgment that awaits those who reject him. So take warning and don't continue to harden your heart to the revealed will of God. Instead, look to him as the powerful redeemer that he's shown himself to be. And come to him in true belief and true faith and repentance. And finally, in chapter 1522 through 1827, we also learn in this passage that God reveals his perseverance, patiently bearing with his people. Something we should all be so thankful for. God bears with his people patiently. In Exodus 15, <clears throat> the Israelites spend three days in the wilderness of Shur with no water. And they wish that they had never left Egypt. When they arrive at Marah, they find that the water there is bitter and they complain. God provides a tree that when put in the water, makes it drinkable. He then leads them to Elam, where there are 12 springs of water and 70 date palms, abundantly providing for them. And then in chapter 16, they're moved on to the wilderness of Sin, which is between Elam and Mount Sinai. And there they complain of hunger and God provides an abundance of quail in the evening And manna from heaven falls down every morning. At this spot, God tests the Israelites to see if they will obey his command not to gather manna on the Sabbath. And the Israelites fail. And God rebukes them. But in this occasion, he doesn't destroy them. From the wilderness of sin, they move on to Rephidim, where again they run out of water and complain against the Lord. And Moses is told at this place to strike a rock with his staff And then water flows out for the people to drink. So we see over these different stories that God tests his people. He tests them both with scarcity and with abundance. And they fail. And yet he continues to care for them and abundantly provide for them. In Rephidim, the Israelites also faced their first physical battle with the Amalekites. And God shows himself as their deliverer once again. When the staff of Moses, representing God's power and presence with the people is held up, the Israelites prevail in the fight. But when it falls, the Amalekites prevail. So Joshua leads the army and Moses sits on a rock with the staff raised above his head, but his arms get tired. And so Aaron and her have to come alongside and hold up his arms. And Israel does defeat Amalek. This victory and every subsequent victory of the Israelites was completely dependent on the Lord. There was no doubt at the end of this battle who should receive the glory. And then in Exodus 18, we read that Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, comes to him with his wife and sons at the mountain of God, which is Horeb or Sinai, providing wisdom for Moses and his suggestion to appoint judges over the people. Exodus 19 fills in the gap and tells us that it was in the third month since their departure from Egypt that they arrived at Mount Sinai. So, despite their wickedness, despite the wickedness of Pharaoh, the faithlessness of the Israelites, and the enemies in the land, God brought them to the place He had promised Moses, and he would wor- that He would worship Yahweh. And so here Moses and the people are at Mount Sinai, worshiping the Lord. <coughs> Excuse me. God knew His people, He knew their doubts and their fears, He knew their focus on the temporal. They were undeserving of his rescue before the Exodus. And they continued to be undeserving after they had been delivered. But God patiently persevered with them throughout the generations, just as he is faithful to do with us. Sorry, I've been plagued with a frog in my throat. throat. So we're going to have many more opportunities in future weeks to dwell on the patient love of God for his people. So I'm not going to speak at length on this point now. But remember that when Israel failed, the Lord never did. When we are faithless, God is faithful. <clears throat> We've seen from this narrative that God revealed to the Israelites and to, his so- and to us his sovereignty, his glory, his redemption, his judgment, and his perseverance. And I hope you've noticed that this whole narrative really isn't so much about the people. It's not so much about the Israelites. This narrative, as well as the rest of scripture, is written to turn our attention to the great I am. In the same way, what's going on in the world today really isn't about us. God is doing something. He is a God who delights to make himself known. How he is working and how he's doing that may be unclear to us at times, But as his redeemed people, we can trust him. And as his redeemed people, our mission is clear. What we are supposed to do is clearly laid out for us in his word. We're not here to make a name for ourselves. We're not here to promote ourselves as though we're something remarkable. We can't do anything apart from God. And our purpose is to point people to Christ by speaking the good news of deliverance from sin, from the slavery to sin through faith in him. And by living lives that show him to be the great I am. So, if you are a believer, you've seen his great deliverance in your own life. Will you trust and obey him? Let's go to him in prayer now, worshiping him as our deliverer, as our patient father, and the glorious redeemer and judge of all the earth. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for revealing yourself to us through your recorded word, through these parts of history that you have chosen to highlight through these characters that put your glory on display. Lord, I pray that each woman here would live by faith, would see you and know you completely as the great I am, and would delight to follow you, to serve you, to do your will, to bring you honor and glory, not for our sake, Lord, but for your name. We pray that you would be honored in our small group discussions now as we dig deeper into your word and encourage one another. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.